You're listening to Atomic Moms, a modern parenting podcast about the joys and complexities of caring for our children and ourselves. I'm Ellie Noss, and since 2014, we've been celebrating and commiserating with world-class experts, best-selling authors, and parents around the world. We are decluttering at the Steagill House, and my husband Adam just found my original iPhone. So now our six-year-old is walking around the house acting like she's Cher from Clueless. She's so thrilled to have her own cell phone, and she keeps flipping her hair back. Oh, boy. She's six. So parents out there of older children, I can't imagine the pressures you must face regarding giving your child a cell phone, like a real one, not like the one Sabrina has right now that will never charge again, but a real one. And I want to know, what age did you decide to give your kids a phone? Or if it's on the horizon, when are you thinking you'll do it? And what went into your decision-making? Leave a comment on this episode's post on Instagram, at Atomic Moms, because I'd love to hear from you. All right. This is a... Oof. This episode feels really important to me. I I kind of want to s- separate it into just different episodes because I don't want parents to listen to the first part and then not hear what happens in the second part. Each segment is really crucial. Um yeah, it just feels very big to me. I've always secretly wanted to corner a pediatrician for an hour and ask all the questions I've ever been worried about without my kid present. (laughs) That's the hard thing about going to the pediatrician, right? It's like your kid's doctor, so your kid's there. In this podcast conversation, I get to ask so many questions and I get them answered without my child just dying of embarrassment. We're going to find out when to have the talk with our kids about their changing bodies and what is actually changing in their bodies. We talk about how to navigate the emotional roller coaster we can expect as our children reach adolescence. And Dr. Natterson shares what every parent needs to be aware of when raising teens in the digital age. So here's a little bit about our esteemed guest today. Dr. Kara Natterson is a pediatrician, consultant, and New York Times bestselling author of puberty and parenting books including the American Girl, The Care and Keeping of You series that has sold a million, billion, zillion, zillion copies. Her, actually, like there was one article from 2017 that I think said six million copies. Her newest book, Decoding Boys, New Science Behind the Subtle Art of Raising Sons, is coming in February 2020. A graduate of Harvard College and Johns Hopkins Medical School, Cara trained in pediatrics at University of California at San Francisco. She began practicing medicine in her hometown of L.A., joining 10th Street Pediatrics in Santa Monica, where she cared for thousands of infants, children, and teenagers. Eight years later, she founded Worryproof Consulting, a practice that gives parents time that their primary doctors often don't have to cover medical, behavioral, and parenting issues in depth. She's the chair of the board of Starlight Children's Foundation, a 30-year-old charity that brings technology, entertainment, and joy to children in nearly every hospital in America. And she's also on the medical board of advisors for The Honest Company. So mamas, this is not a conversation to listen to with young kids around. So put on those headphones because it's really, I, I feel 
strongly that this is an important conversation to hear. Even though my children are six and two, I know it's part of my job to educate myself about what's on the horizon. And look, I I had a hard enough time getting through puberty myself, and uh, I just wish my little kids would stay little forever. But I do feel so much better after speaking with Dr. Natterson, and I feel so much more equipped for this next stage in our parenting journey. We'll be right back. Dr. Kara Natterson, thank you so much for coming on Atomic Moms. Oh, thank you for having me. Your book is called Decoding Boys, The New Science Behind the Subtle Art of Raising Sons. And in it, you tackle puberty. So why isn't the P word in the title, Dr. Natterson? Why so subtle? (laughs) <laughs> I, I wanted to call it spilling the puberty. Oh, that's good. right. Uh, yeah, the marketing department overruled me. I, you know, it's um, I think the main reason why it fell off the title is that the book talks about what it's like to parent a boy between eight and eighteen. And in my life, given what I do, um, and I wear a lot of hats in this world, but. Um, no one who has an eight-year-old wants to talk about puberty. It's not something that feels remotely close, even though, and we'll talk about this, I'm sure, it, it is. It's happening for some, a lot of girls and for some boys. And the parents of the 18-year-olds feel like, ah, distant past. Mm-hmm. So really, it's this span of life that occupies a, an enormous chunk. I mean, at least a decade, right? Um, but if you're trying to reach a parent audience, first you have to reach them where they are, and then you have to take them to where you want them to go. And so I think if I had put the P word in the title, maybe I wouldn't have gotten there. It's true. The P word, it, it's a real turnoff. Yeah. My, ask my kids. <laughs> They're very clear on that. <laughs> Which is amazing because really the clothes on their back are probably because of the P word. Because <laughs> yes. you've really created... This incredible legacy, I am, I've got to give a quick shout out to the books that I have on my desk right now. The New York Times bestseller, The Care and Keeping of You, One and Two, which is the body book for girls and older girls. Yep. There's the book, Is This Normal? Oh, my God. Can I just start texting you that like, <laughs> about myself? Join the text club. Okay. I'm like, <laughs> I welcome it. After two children, I feel like I'm hitting a new form of puberty, yeah. like whatever yeah. this new, I don't know, things are changing. Yes, they are. <laughs> Normal has a whole different definition. Uh, yeah. I think we, American Girl, if you're listening, I think we need that book for moms <laughs> in our bodies after kids. Uh, and then you have your book, uh, Guy Stuff, the body book for boys. And I read that your son had titled it Guy he, Stuff. He did. He looked at me like I was crazy when I told him that American Girl was considering publishing a boy book. His Actually, his first line was, um, they're a company for girls. So why are you asking me the question, what I would call this? And I said, well, I'm just curious. And then he, he was about eight or nine at the time. And he said, well, because... If you call it guy stuff, that's pretty much the book that all boys would read. And he just walked away, you know, as if, you know, <laughs> mic drop. Okay. I called American Girl. I have the title. It's guy stuff. And it worked. And, and, it worked. and I'm guessing it sold well. You know, these books 
it's bananas, the numbers. Um, you know, you follow different metrics, but um, guy stuff, about a thousand copies a week on average <laughs> um, from a girl toy company, which yeah. is what's really remarkable is that American Girl has figured out how to speak to the tween audience about health and wellness mm-hmm. in a really effective way. So, yeah, the guy stuff's doing well. Well, and it also makes sense because as a mother, I mean, I we obviously, there are American Girl stores all over. Yeah the world. But whenever we go to New York, mm-hmm. we must go to the one next to Rockefeller Center. <laughs> the mothership. It, yeah, the mothership, <laughs> literally. And it's, um, yeah, it must be a relief for mothers to see yeah. the boy one next to the girl one. You're solving problems for them. They can pick up both and take them home. And it's for girls, too. I mean, I think the the whole point of writing the boy version um, in in my own mind, in my own Math And this is, I think, what got American Girl to the point where they said, oh, this is a great idea, is that um, puberty is pretty human. I think mm-hmm. in my 100 pages of those, each of those books, there's only about a 20-page differential. 80 pages are all the same. They're written in a slightly different tone. The girl book is pink and purple. The boy book is a little different. But um, nutrition, no gender. Uh, exercise, no gender. The need for sleep, no gender. Using soap in the shower, um, no gender, right? <laughs> uh, so, you know, yeah, you got between the shoulders and the pelvis, you got a few differences there, but that's, it's a little piece of it. Mm-hmm. I was reading an essay that you wrote for Goop a while back, and the title of it is Navigating Adolescence and Understanding Your Kid's Perspective. And I loved this quote. It's when adults understand physical, mental, and social development through the lens of their kids, they find they can parent more effectively. So I'm wondering about the importance of writing Decoding Boys right now. It's an interesting time. I've got two little girls, ages two and a half and six and a half, and they are so all about their girl power. They are the bosses of their bodies. <laughs> and Love it. It's, it's an awesome time to and scary time, but an awesome time to be a mother of girls, especially as yeah. a girl who had gone off to a women's college myself. Like it, feel, it feels good that things are being shaken up. On the other hand, and I'm not as in the loop on the boy world as many of our listeners are and as you are, it, it seems like from what you wrote that people have not been paying attention to the way that boys change and what we can do about that. So today I really am looking forward to you sharing um, how we can look at the mental, social, and physical development of our boys through their lens. Um, Boy, I have so many things to say, but I'm just going to say two brief little comments. The first is you've hit on a, a theme that comes out in all of my writing, whether I'm writing for kids or for adults, and I have a, a foot in each world. Um, and that is that for whatever reason, we have started to view information about body and emotional development and and sort of all of the the baggage that comes along with puberty and adolescence. We view it as a finite pie of some sort where there's a certain amount of information to be dispensed. And I say the royal weight sort of society. Um, 
And so the more information and the more voice that goes to girls, it feels like the less goes to boys, which makes no sense because it's not a finite pie. Knowledge is, you can, you can multiply knowledge in, in any number of directions. And, and the more we give girls um, does not, it should not then mandate the less we give boys. So I agree with you. I think we've watched over the last 20 or 30 years a real pendulum shift in terms of how girls talk about their bodies and how proud they are to have these bodies and have these brains and have sort of their awareness of where they are in the world. And I think it has moved them forward in such a profound way. I think they started talking about what was happening to them, boobs and periods and all of it. And for whatever reason, the world gave them a microphone and said, you go, girl. And they stood up and they did it. But why, as a result of that, do we see the ever-increasing silence of our boys? And maybe it's relative, or maybe it's this sort of pie phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. So I think you're hitting exactly on the core of the issue, the core of my issue. When we talk about puberty, what do we really mean? Hmm. I mean, I just yeah. already want to cringe. Define terms. I'm like, yeah. oh, I'm my armpits are sweating. <laughs> <laughs> I never got over that. Uh, I was really, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and one doesn't. Yeah, no, no, no. no. Um, there's a there's a whole world of consumer products for that. Um, puberty. Okay, the definition of puberty is the path from physical immaturity to maturity, so that you can reproduce. Okay. So it's really Ugh, I'm already cringing. It's really a physical process. Yeah. Um and adolescence is part puberty and it's also part the social and emotional development, also the brain development of what happens to kids around this same time. But adolescence lasts longer than puberty. Um and it, it let me can I give you a quick um Quick biology lesson. Dr. Kara, this is, <laughs> this is your podcast. Okay, let's do it. Um, and by the way, let me just say for the record, um, I'm a big fan of sharing information. I don't believe that there is any age at which it is inappropriate to talk about body with the appropriate terminology and to share facts. So your two and a half year old, mm-hmm. um, while, you know, this conversation may go over her head. There's nothing bad, uh, mm-hmm. nothing sort of earmuffs about it, right? Mm-hmm. This is just basic biology. So let's start sharing the terms. So I'm just putting it out there because a lot of parents of tweens and teens may want to just have their kids listen to this little piece mm-hmm. so that they understand what their parents can now understand. Okay. So puberty is governed by the sex hormones. So what that means is in girls... It is largely governed by estrogen, and in boys, it is largely governed by testosterone. Now, there are a lot of other hormones that change the way your body is shaped and the way it grows, but those are kind of the boss hormones, okay? Estrogen for girls, testosterone for boys. Okay. Um, Why someone tips into puberty and why those hormones start to rise? No one is 100% sure. There are a lot of scientists who do a lot of research. We understand where in the brain the trigger happens, Mm. but what triggers the trigger 
no one really knows for sure. And this is very significant because the average age at which kids are beginning puberty, meaning those hormones are starting to rise, is earlier and earlier and earlier. So um, I'll get into a little of that data if you're interested later. But um, what's important to know for the basics Mm -hmm. is when estrogen starts to rise in a girl, you see a couple of things. Um, By the way, there's no order to puberty. There's no right way things happen. There's a whole laundry list, and it happens the way it happens in every girl, and it's different in every girl, and vice versa for the guys, which is why it makes us crazy, okay? There's no checklist and sort of way it's going to progress. But here's what happens. Your estrogen starts to rise, and the first kind of signs that we see of puberty are breast buds. So those are those really hard mounds under the nipple. They come up usually on one side first, which scares most girls in a world (laughs) where we talk about a lot of breast cancer, right? Mm. So that's good to know. File that one away. Um, And mood swings. And mood swings are special, (laughs) right? Um, When I teach girls in the classroom, and I teach girls often, um, and boys, but um, when I teach girls, I ask them who likes how it feels to have those mood swings. And not one of them likes how it feels. Um, But we've all, any of us who have girls who are certainly by fourth grade, for sure, for sure, by fourth grade, we have all seen it in our girls, these moments of of unpredictable reaction, right? Um, And sometimes it's not negative. Sometimes it's not tears and it's not sadness and it's not hysteria. It can be hysterical laughing. It's just, right? It's just. Maybe I should get my estrogen Right, exactly. You're (laughs) like, "Hmm, am I in puberty? So um, those are the two sort of starter things for girl puberty. Okay. They're kind of obvious. Girls wear them on their sleeve, sort of, or on their chest. Hair is not a sign of puberty. So hair in your armpits, which is called axillary hair, or hair in your genital region, which is called pubic hair for both boys and girls, is not a sign of puberty. Mm. The hormone that makes you grow hair is not estrogen and it's not testosterone. It's just tends to happen around the same time that puberty happens, which is why a lot of parents think it's the first sign of puberty Mm -hmm. and it tends to show up early in some kids. But those parents who have talked to their doctor about it all know, oh, it's sort of a red herring. It's not really a sign. Okay, so that's girl puberty and it sort of chugs along from there. Boy puberty starts with testosterone rising. Well, testosterone's made in the testicles. Okay, that's the testosterone factory in our body. A little made elsewhere, but mostly in the testicles. So boys start to have testicular growth because their testicles have to get bigger in order to make more and more testosterone. And it takes a couple of years from when puberty turns on in a boy until their testicles are big enough and online enough and making enough testosterone for us to see the things that we think of as signs of boy puberty. You know, a little bit of muscle development, deepening of the voice, the sort of classic hallmarks of boy puberty. Um, We don't tend to check their testicle size totally appropriately. It's not like I want parents walking around saying, "Um, you know, Jimmy, come on over here. I want to measure your testicles. And you can. There's like a whole, there's a strand of beads called an orchidometer and you can actually measure testicles. Don't do it. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I was going to clarify that if you did it. Even I didn't do it. Okay. Let me just tell you, I have a 14-year-old son. I did not do it. Um, But And you're a doctor. Exactly. But um, but boys have testicular growth for a couple of years before they show any signs of puberty. So they're Mm. in it way before we realize they're in it. Okay. 
Um, boys will grow hair too, not puberty. It's a different path. Um, they will sweat and smell and their feet. It's like insane. It's insane. That is not so much a sign of puberty because that goes on the same path as the hair growth. Mm. So these parents often say, well, my son's not in puberty because he doesn't have this, this, or this, or my son is in puberty because he has this, this, and this. And because we haven't defined any of the terms, they've got it all wrong. So puberty for boys is testicular growth. But you're telling us not to check. It. I am. So I, how yeah. do you? <laughs> I am telling you, you have a pediatrician for a reason. Yes. And that is the person who should be telling you if your son is in puberty. Okay. And for sure, that is the way to go. Some people have nudist children who love running around. Okay. I don't have one of those. But God bless you. That is awesome because you can actually see that your son is in puberty and you're like, I know I am ahead of that. But most boys, when they go into puberty, get private. So most parents don't know. So you just said that they get private and the parents don't know. And you share that there's a lot of door closing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you encourage us to start early with our communication with our children yeah. so that when they hit this stage you will be able to find a way in, a way to open that door a little bit. Yeah, that's right. How do we teach the fathers of our children (laughs) how to be emotionally available and holding that space for their sons? It's very hard. They weren't raised that way, right? I mean, I think this is the big ask of decoding boys. It's not an ask of mothers as much because they tend to be a little bit more conversationalists and they remember their puberty, even though they were raised at a time, many of them, where there wasn't quite as much conversation. They still tend to be more conversationalists by and large. It's a very stereotypical statement and I don't want to make it sound like a gender has a way of communicating, but by and large, today's fathers were raised it's totally fine. You're going to go quiet? Go quiet. Shut your door. This too shall pass. And and it did, right? Mm-hmm. And don't cry. Later, don't cry. Just like, we don't, you do you. And you're going to ignore us. We'll ignore you. And you know what happened? Those dads and grandparents and great-grandparents, they all emerged a few years later from behind those closed doors. And most of them, not all, but most of them became fully conversational adults. But who still don't totally, I mean, huge generalization, whatever. It's my podcast. I want to generalize. (laughs) Yes, they emerge years later, but then they still don't have the tolerance for the feelings. And then these grown men who have children now end up suddenly overwhelmed by all of the emotions that are happening. And my sweet, incredible, caring, gentle husband has it's a it's a challenge and it's and, overwhelming and you are correct that the challenge for dads has nothing to do with whether you have a daughter or a son it's your challenge from how you were raised and the path that you took through puberty i you know i argue very vehemently that dads who are communicative dads and who kick the door open kick the door open but gently push the door open those dads 
end up connecting with their kids, whether they are daughters or sons, far Mm -hmm. more profoundly. And here's the whole thing. In today's world, the consequences of not connecting with your child and not having conversations are different. So Mm. when my husband, who sounds a lot like yours, right? The sweetest, most gentle, most authentic person on earth. When I said to him, here's the deal, you got to be in that room as often as I am. You have to have these conversations as often as I do. I mean, the first thing he said is, oh, this is what you do for a living. No, you know, I was like, oh, no, no, we're not, I, I take off that hat at home. But um, but you're the expert. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, you're like, nope, not here. We are all making this up as we go along. I just want to be very clear. But he, you know, for him to hear me say that, I needed to follow that sentence with, because based upon what they face on social media, based upon the exposure to pornography online, based upon boy body image issues, which are just as big as girl body image issues, based upon access to guns and violence in our society, based upon issues around sexual consent. We have to teach our boys to communicate because the consequences are dire. And I would argue all of those variables have shifted between when I was growing up and when my kids have grown up. I I don't think we needed to worry. I think we needed to worry to some degree, but not to this degree about the lifetime consequences of having no voice. Mm-hmm. And we know that for our girls. Yep. Right? We have right. fought so hard to give our girls voice. How are we not applying that same lesson to our boys? Yep. That is what blows my mind. So I think when put in those terms, dads understand. I do. And I think when they don't feel criticized for the way they process, but instead mm-hmm. it's sort of framed to them as this is different. So what if a parent has a kid that is growing <laughs> testicularly? <laughs> and does that even mean, I'm going to kill myself later for asking this question, does that mean the <laughs> penis size is automatically larger or is the testicles a separate thing? Can you imagine being my children, by the way? Like just this is for mine. This is ongoing in my house. This is like dinner table talk. And my son, who is 14, is like, really, mom? Like, yeah. Um, yeah. So testicles grow first, penis shaft size, length, and and girth grows either at the same time or just shortly after. Okay. Yeah. So if that is on track, but he he doesn't he is still very small and doesn't have any facial hair. Like, yeah, still kids, I imagine, pick on each other. What do you say to that mother or father? Like, how do they support their kids? So this is where I believe that there is no age at which it is too early to start educating your kids about what's happening in their bodies because it empowers them. And it's the reason why in Decoding Boys, the first half of the book is about everything that's happening inside the body so that Everyone gets on the same page so that everyone understands. So remember I told you that hair is not puberty, mm-hmm. okay? It's called adrenarchy because it's governed, hair growth is governed by the adrenal glands and the hormones that come out of the adrenal glands. Those glands sit on top of your kidneys, far from the testicles. So hair, we think you're supposed to get hair in puberty. It comes around the same time as puberty, but it's not what's going to get you to sexual maturation and the ability to make offspring. So does my kid just say that? Like, yeah. I know that these I are know that. everyone else's. <laughs> right. Well, because these are the yes. 
These are the watermarks. You got it. That children are comparing each other. And it's really helpful for boys to understand. Some guys are going to get hair early. Some guys are going to grow in their testicles and penis early. Some guys are going to have voices that drop early. Some guys are going to have height gain in their growth spurt early. And some guys are going to be late to the party all around. And all of it is a version of normal until you get to 14. And then you kind of have to do a little bit of inventory. Mm, Okay. But all of it is normal, which feels bad because I've just told you that if you are black, you have a 50% chance of being in puberty by your ninth birthday. Okay. Some number of those boys are in puberty at seven or eight. Now I'm telling you, it's also normal not to be in puberty until you're 14. Like we are talking about by the time you are 14, you have spent half your life either in it or not in it compared to someone Mm -hmm. else. It's a lot. It's a lot for them to handle. So education, 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 and knowing where it's going to go from here. And do you start that conversation early, even if you think that your child, you're for my daughter? Yes. Do I start that at seven? Because Dr. Natterson, here's was my puberty story. I'm sure everyone loves to tell you theirs. My the only talk I think I ever really had with my mother was my mom and my grandmother talking about whether or not I would be flat chested like my dad's side of the family while I pretended to be asleep on the couch. <laughs> it's awesome. So when do I start doing that to my kid? <laughs> what do I actually say? You know what's so funny is. I always say we're making this up as we go along. We also um, have no idea the little things that we've said that have (laughs) stuck with them. So there's probably already a story filed away in her brain that you're just hoping gets purged from the memory banks, right? Because, I mean, plenty. we all mess it up. Um, So my mom would probably stand by it. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Um, Our moms might be related. Um, So here's the deal. You don't want to create anxiety around what's going to happen. Okay, so you've got a six and a half year old. It's a lot to have a conversation about this is what's going to happen to your body. And she's looking at adult women and there's no, there's nothing really relevant to her. And really what's relevant to her are eight and nine year olds. That's Mm -hmm. aspirational, not like, not some gross 24 year old, you know, or whatever it is. So, um, You don't want to build anxiety around it. But the conversations to start now and to start young are, well, they range. One is sort of the the tenets of basic healthy living. So nutrition, exercise, sleep, hygiene. If you are having a constant thread of conversations around those four topics, you are empowering your children to then have body awareness as their bodies begin to change. And you're saying, We talk about bodies in this family and there's no judgment and it's totally fine. So nutrition, you know, it's, there are a million ways to talk about nutrition just down to you're sitting at dinner and you look at what's in front of you and you just start going, okay, guys, what do you think these things do to your body? Who knows what makes your bones grow? Who knows what makes your muscles grow? And you just kind of play games. You are teaching your kids that what they put into or onto their bodies impact the way their bodies grow and change. You are starting a conversation about body right? Exercise, calling awareness to exercise, not just, oh, I didn't work out today. I feel terrible, which is what we all do, right? But to say, wow, you played a great soccer game and you know what? You got a ton of exercise. That's so good for your body. 
even if your daughter's like mine was and just picks daisies on the field, right? <laughs> mine was like, really, really, she's very funny. She's still the same way. Um, but calling awareness to it, right? Sleep. If, I mean, let me tell you, if there's no other conversation you have with your kids, it's to empower them to want to go to bed. Right. Oh, real fast. Give me that line. Well, it's it's tremendous because if they're sleep battles, it's they're sleep battles and that's exhausting. Um, they grow when they sleep. Okay. Period. Full stop. As they get older, you can explain growth hormone is the hormone in your body that tells your bones to grow. And it is released when you are in deep sleep, not laying in your bed, calling my name. <laughs> up, right. <laughs> growth hormone is released when you are in deep sleep. So you want to grow, go to bed. And let me tell you, they hear it from you. They really hear it from me or from not you, you know, yeah. a version of not you. My kids don't hear it from me, but because totally. I am. I had a mom. list yeah. for our pediatrician yesterday for my two and a half year old. Totally. It's like, we're going to talk about hygiene today, right? And the importance of brushing our teeth and brushing our I hair. Mean, right? And I, she spent all oh, this morning on the way to preschool. Yes. She was like, Dr. Klausner, see my sparkly teeth. <laughs> By the way, I love her. She's great. (laughs) She's great. Um, But, you know, that, yes. So from not you, you could even tell someone who's coming over for dinner, if you're having some conflict, you're going to be like, can you just throw in there that you got to use soap in the shower? I mean, you know, and they hear it from whoever that not you person is, they will hear. But hygiene is a huge one. And in puberty, you know, they smell. They start to sweat. And the sweat is consumed by bacteria that live on the skin. Oh, my God. I'm thinking about my dance bag. (laughs) Right? Okay. Your dance bag is what your children will smell like if they don't use soap in the shower. So, you know, how? and and then what I've always said to my kids is, I am not saying this as a judgment. I am saying this because no one else will tell you. That's the dirty little secret. If you smell, no one else is going to tell you because it's rude. It's considered not okay. So do you, and then I, I give them the choice. Do you want me to tell you? You know, and it took them a while, but yeah, was the ultimate answer. So that's what you start young. Okay. You start those conversations. Then you go to the other stuff. Don't start sexual consent at six, but start consent at six. Oh, yeah. We started start, before that. Right? Yes. You bet. You yeah. bet. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then, because you've we've both already shared how children, even before they hit puberty, would rather get the message from mm-hmm. someone else. Yes. Let's talk about peers. Okay, so my daughter, Sabrina, she has made some best friends at her kindergarten who have older siblings. So now she comes home from school and she's singing songs that she learned from TikTok. She hasn't seen TikTok. And for future listeners, a couple of years from now, it's an app that I don't even, I haven't gone on. But she's learning these songs because of the older siblings, Mm -hmm. right? How do we get on the same page with other parents? Can we? And how do I not be a stick in the mud? But I don't want her to go down the rabbit hole quickly into seeing a bunch of girls with big boobs dancing around. Right. Okay. So. (laughs) And for our boys. Right. (laughs) Comma. And for our boys. Um, Which is how boys get so left out of the conversation because we talk about it with our girls, right? We're like, girls, this is empowering. This isn't. And we are are better at it. So, um, okay. Technology. Um. Every couple of years, I think it becomes a steeper climb for parents of young kids with technology. And the reason why is there are definitely a lot of negatives. 
And now we know there are definitely a lot of positives. And so it's not an easy slam dunk thing where you can have an ironclad rule and you know your ironclad rule will protect your child. You know, the the whole goal of parenting is to keep your kids safe and healthy. Okay, so I've never met a parent who doesn't say that. When I, you know, pose it to them, what do you want for your kid? It's always a version of, I want to keep them safe and healthy. Yeah, I want them to be happy. I want them to be this, that, you know, conscientious, good humans, all this, but it's get them there, right? So if you could create some sort of rule around tech and social media that would get your kid to safe and healthy, I would hand it to you. And I would say, this is the rule and follow it. I'm not shy about where I think limits in certain arenas benefit kids. And we know for sure kids love limits and limits in certain arenas for sure benefit kids. But social media and tech are tricky because the landscape is developing really, really quickly. And you can't study it fast enough, right? So um, TikTok, a billion users a day. Um, out, and out I still don't know how to right. explain it. <laughs> right. But it's like I've already out of aged field, out of right? and And by the time a study is done looking at the impact, there will be the next platform and the next thing. So I wish I could give you an ironclad. But what I can do is answer your second question, which is how do you get on the same page as other parents? which really becomes the big question about raising kids in a safe and healthy way. And the answer is um, twofold. The first is you find your tribe. So you, with preschool and young grade school age kids, parents can find like-minded parents who have similar rules and similar values, and they can sort of organize the interactions between the kids so that when kids go between different houses, you know your child is going to a house where you're comfortable, where the limits are similar, okay? Um, Yeah, but my kid sniffs out the kids that have the older siblings. Totally. (laughs) You know, when I was a kid, my closest friend was the one who had fruit rolls, okay? Yeah. Because I was not allowed to have fruit rolls. Oh, yeah. It's like, are there candy jars on the kitchen counter? (laughs) Okay, so she's my people. Um, So that's one way you can do it. But the other way is you can acknowledge, you can surrender and acknowledge Parents, all parents are going to come at this differently, you know, not to repeat myself 10 times, but we're all making it up as we go along. Mm -hmm. We're just taking the information we have and doing the best we can. And so all you can do is talk to your kids about why every single limit you place on them, follow with a statement of why you're not apologizing. You're not saying I don't stock our pantry with tons of sugar and I'm really sorry about it. You're saying I don't stock our pantry with tons of sugar because this is how sugar makes you feel. Mm -hmm. This is what sugar does to your body. You get plenty of sugar during the day at school. I feel like if I have it at the house, it's not the right thing for me to do for you. You're teaching them with no judgment of other parents Mm -hmm. why you parent the way you parent. And the beauty of that is that you will mess it up a lot and you will make rules that you regret. And when you make a rule that you regret, and you can't rationalize the why, you're going to be able to go to your children and you're going to be able to say, you know what? I was wrong on this one. I take it back. This is where I wanted to get to. This is not getting me here. Mm -hmm. I'm taking a do-over. And it is so powerful in parenting to be able to give your kids the rationale so that you can then also have a pivot. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Definitely. And so nothing's in cement in parenting, right? No. And with tech... The best gift you can give your kids is to delay, 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 
but you have a daughter who has friends who all have older siblings. She will have some exposure. Frankly, even if they didn't all have older siblings, this is the world we live in. And with mobile devices and all of the ubiquitous content flooding at kids, she'd have exposure. Is it worth doing s- special settings for age limits? Or, do, or are there so many workarounds now with these apps and stuff anyway? I'm thinking about boys, yeah. middle school boys and porn. Yeah. So um, I do not believe that they are ready for the Wild West of what's on a phone or an iPad. And it used to be that we measured their exposure based upon how old they were when they got their own device, which, by the way, the average age in America for a first smartphone is 10, average. Mm. Half of all kids get them before they're 10, Um, right? So I want to just pause for a second on that one. They are not ready for unfettered access, and we give it to them. Now, these days, they just grab our devices, and so long as they know a passcode and a login— they're good to go. Yep. Um, so we have to be just as vigilant about that. Yes, I believe in age gating for okay. sure. For sure. So another average statistic, which is um, very overwhelming, is the average age of first porn viewing. So the average age, depending upon which study you read, is somewhere between 11 and 13 for boys. What that means is that boys in middle school, at least half of them, are viewing sex, usually aggressive, misogynistic, not the kind of sex you wish for them one day sex. And they're viewing it way before they've ever thought about what sex means or is for them. I believe in age gating. That being said, you can't just limit it at home and think you've solved the problem because the majority of boys will tell you, we ended up watching porn because a kid on the bus had his phone and showed it to yeah. me. I was at someone's house and the older sibling showed it to me. I did a Google search and I mistyped a word and boom, there was the image. I went on Snapchat. <laughs> I'm only laughing because that's me. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. Snapchat ads or Instagram ads, boom, porn. Like it's it's everywhere. I looked up <laughs> for oh, an God. interview on on Zero Waste. I, was, I looked up the uh, Dutch oven Oh, and like the oh first God. question is like, do you know what Dutch oven means sexually? And I was like, uh. <laughs> so what age do you think is appropriate for a child to own a phone? Yeah. And I would love to just quickly underline that you say never let them have it in their room. Oh, I'm so big on that. So the, the correct age for a child to have their phone is going to be very personal. Um, my general philosophy on all fronts is delay as long as possible. Because once you give over, it's very hard to take back. Mm-hmm. Okay. That being said, if you have given a phone and you know you've done it too soon for your child, you're the parent. Take the phone back. It's your phone. If you gave an eight-year-old a phone and you regret it and you did it because you thought they needed to text you and what you realize is you've just given them a handheld computer that has more power than you ever imagined. Take it back. Or if you want to give your 10-year-old a phone because you feel that there are safety issues and you need to communicate with your kid, get a flip phone. Or if you can't get yourself there because you can't get yourself there, fine, get a smartphone. Take everything off. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have anything on there. You don't have to have internet. You don't have mm-hmm. to have social media. But explain the why. It's not about lacking trust. You trust your child. Mm-hmm. It's about they're not ready for it. 
And I always tell my kids, if I give you everything right when you want it, what is there to look forward to anyways? Which in the moment they really don't understand, but later they come back to me now at 14 and 16. They're like, yeah, you got a good point there, which is interesting. <laughs> um, so I don't think there's a right age. Many parents will say when a child goes to middle school and they start having more physical independence, they feel the need to communicate more with their kid through a phone. That's fine for some families. There's a big wait until eighth movement that I hope catches mm. on. Um, and all these parents sign a contract. Up. You're just not getting a phone till you're in eighth grade. I think that's appropriate for those families. Um, I think we just can't judge other families because there are all of these other circumstances that sometimes we don't understand. But delay, delay, delay as long as possible. Okay, so I was speaking to this mother, and she said that her son, who's still in elementary school, has a, a cell phone um, and that he plays games on it and that she completely trusts him in what he's viewing mm-hmm. and that, oh, no, he hasn't seen porn. He would talk to her about it. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I mean, I'd say there's a teeny tiny chance that that is rooted in reality, but this isn't about trusting your kid. I mean, there are entire industries devoted to getting your child's eyeballs early using free content, free games, free porn, free whatever, to then train their brains to want to come back for more so that over time, eventually they have lifetime users. So it's great if you trust your child. That's wonderful. But it's not your child's fault Mm -hmm. if they end up sort of falling prey to what a lot of people spend all day, every day trying to get your kids to watch. And can you explain to us how the brain at this age is more susceptible to addiction? Yeah. So um, one of the most important things for kids to understand And again, this is past the exercise, nutrition, sleep, hygiene stage of talking. This is sort of in the middle school years. Kids need to understand how their brains mature. And this is where this conversation of you don't trust me really comes in. Because the way the brain matures in the most basic, basic sense, um, and you've had great people on this podcast who've talked about brain maturation, so your listeners are aware, but in the most basic, basic sense, by middle school, The part of the brain that is fully myelinated, so it is the nerves are fully insulated and they can send messages much, much faster and more efficiently. That part of the brain is the limbic system. That's the emotional, impulsive, feel-good, motivated part of the brain, okay? And by fourth or fifth grade, it's totally on board and it is great and ready to go. The part of the brain that will not be fully mature that will be slower to send and receive messages for another probably 15 years, 15 years, is the prefrontal cortex. And that's the counterbalance to the limbic system. That's the part of the brain that goes, wait a second. If I do this, this might happen. So maybe I shouldn't do that. And there are lots of kids who are able to access their prefrontal cortex because they all have them, okay? There are kids who just wait and allow the signal to get there and they can access it. And those are the caretaker kids. Those are the kids who make good decisions. You know, we know those kids. The kids who get themselves into some trouble often are the kids who can't wait the millisecond or two that it takes for the message to get to that 
CEO part of the brain, Mm -hmm. and they are all in the emotional part of the brain. Let me say, evolutionarily, it is not a bad thing for the limbic system to dominate in the tween, teen, and 20-something years. It's actually a great thing. If you look at the tech industry, look at every successful tech company. The founders were in their teens and 20s. They were leaning on their limbic systems. They were taking risks Mm -hmm. and they transformed the world. So when we talk about risk-taking, I think we always go to this deviant behavior thing. And I think that's the wrong way to think about it. I think we just have to understand that we're not thinking about the risk-benefit analysis when the limbic system is governing the brain. Well, if kids understand that, then they begin to understand how they end up in compromising situations. Why did I go on this porn site? Because I just wasn't thinking about the consequences. They all know there's porn out there. There's not an 11-year-old boy who hasn't heard of it. And if there is, congratulations to those parents for keeping that child a little bit sheltered from that, but he's about to learn about it. So the question of how to keep them away from it is partly for them to understand how their brains are wired and why they do what they do. The other piece is to understand why they go back. Mm -hmm. So I'm not a therapist, but a therapist might say people go back to the site of trauma, right? Um, And the brain is wired to do that. Through the pediatric lens and the medical lens, the way I would put it is slightly differently. That's, it's not, not true. It's just a slightly different way of looking at it, which is when your brain is maturing. You are pruning away neurons that you don't need. We're born with 100 billion neurons. We don't need them all. And as you become a specialist, as English becomes your primary language, as you become a really good baseball player, whatever it is that you start specializing in, your brain discards neurons that do other things. And you become better and better and better at this smaller group of things. It's sort of like when you when there's a big snowstorm and there are just three feet of snow and you need to make a path through the snow. And the first couple of times you trod through this snow and you are making the path with your feet and your legs and you're kicking the snow out of your way. But after you travel that path enough times, you've trodden a path and now you can get through the snow more easily. The more you do something in your brain, particularly when it's young and pruning, the more your brain is wired to follow that path. That, in the most basic sense, is what happens with early addiction. You're carving a path that the more you travel it and the better it feels, the more you want to travel it because you want to feel that way. And you can feel that way because you do crossword puzzles and you solve a crossword and you can travel that path because you shoplift and you love how it feels to steal something. I mean, it's not, again, this isn't all negative and positive, but that's where early addiction begins. You get a little dopamine hit in your brain. You want to recreate the feeling. You travel the same path. You don't even realize it. So the combination of how your brain develops and repeating those paths That's what sets kids up for addiction. And that is why they are far more likely to become addicted to addicting substances or addicting behaviors if they start young. Mm -hmm. And if you can just give their, delay, 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 right? Just like the phone. If you can just give their brain time, then it's just harder to make those paths. It's not impossible. We know a lot of adults who fall into patterns of addiction 
because they're chasing that feeling too. Mm. And before I had children, I would have thought, okay, well, you don't want people, to, kids to see porn. I get that. But the idea that these children haven't had any experiences themselves, they're comparing their bodies to these men. Yeah. And then when they are in these situations themselves, then they're comparing the female body to what they've seen on screen. And it's going to look nothing like it. That's right. And the girls, by the way, know all about those female bodies. They're comparing to. Yeah. And then and their the behavior. They're doing the behavior. Right. I mean, it's all. And then the, what I read in your book that was so shocking to me is the idea that these teenagers have erectile dysfunction because yeah, of watching porn on their phones. Yeah. Which is that trodden path through the brain, right? Yeah. So in order to be stimulated enough to have an orgasm, which is really sort of the, the goal of porn, right? I mean, in, in a nutshell, um, you if you have to up the ante as the porn creator... And if the content is everywhere, and this is what kids are watching early, then it's they boys will describe how difficult it is to get to that place physically and emotionally with sort of quote unquote normal real life sex. Yeah, with an actual human being. Yeah. Wow. It's really intense. It's a lot to think about for both parents of boys and parents of girls, right? It's yeah. just a lot, it's heavy. That's a humongous difference. You know how we started the conversation with, you know, the dads and how do you have the dads talk about it? I think porn is one of the best examples because back in the day, Playboy was just the, the big topic of conversation. Oh my gosh, you know, he saw Playboy and this, that, and the other, and the dads all talk about it now. They're experiencing that, right? <laughs> to put porn in that context and to explain to dads what their boys are seeing. It's not about your own imagination anymore. It's not about any, it's mm -hmm. someone is dictating for you exactly how it should be and how it should be is not what you want for your child. Dads want in on that conversation. I'm convinced they want in on that conversation. They want to rewrite that narrative for their kids. This is so powerful. In your book, Decoding Boys, New Science Behind the Subtle Art of Raising Sons, you go into video gaming and violence, but I selfishly, because I have a moment left with you, I want to know, like, how do you role play with your children? What should happen if they're on a play date and they find a gun? Yeah. It's a great question to end on. And it's something that in the same way that we were talking about how memory paths get burned in your brain, role playing, which I can't stand role playing. I'm terrible <laughs> at it. Okay. <laughs> But role-playing... I really thrive. <laughs> <laughs> you can come over and do it with my kids. Role-playing, really, um, it burns those paths. It creates, essentially, a muscle memory so that you are... You, the, the person who has done the role-play, are already armed with the ability to manage a situation when you're in the situation because you've done it before, right? Um, it's no different, by the way, than when your child is really acting out and you have no consequence at hand because you haven't thought it through before. Mm -hmm. And then you're really annoyed that you don't know what to do in mm -hmm. the moment because you've not, right. And if you had just kind of role-played it in your own mind, you would have already had the consequence ready, right? Ditto mm -hmm. just to a crazy degree with the gun conversation. So, I mean, listen, the right thing for parents to do before they get into a conversation with their child 
is to make a promise to themselves that anytime they send their child over to someone's home, they ask the question, do you have guns? And if so, are they unloaded and locked away? It's a really hard question to ask. It is a question that most parents are not comfortable asking. And especially in certain communities where guns are used for hunting and guns are used for all sorts of other purposes, it feels like a judgy question. It is not a judgy question. This is not a question that says, if you have guns, you are a bad person. The question is, if you have a gun in your home, is it unloaded and locked away? And the reason why that question is so important is that we know that when you look at the death rates among school-age kids, that accidental homicide is either number one or number two, depending upon which decade you're looking at. And it's accidental. It's a child finds usually a gun and they, you know, in this world that we live in where there are lots of toy guns and there's lots of um, very realistic um, weaponry, sometimes they just don't know. So if you can steal yourself and ask that question, whether you have a girl or a boy, it is very powerful to ask. And it is a wonderful way to remind other parents, hey, if you have not unloaded and locked away your gun, you should. Okay. Um, that's a heavy ask. So what do you do with your child? What I do with my kids, actually, I don't do it anymore. They're old. Um, what, what I did for many years with my kids was I would say at the dinner table when we happen to have five minutes, um, I would say, okay, if you're ever over at someone's house and you see them playing with something that you're not sure is a toy gun, it doesn't look bright green and it doesn't have Nerf written on it, you know, whatever it is, what do you do? And I, over the years, got my kids to the point where they just knew, you know, I get myself out of the room. I get myself to an adult. If I can't find an adult, I get to you. My um, best parenting advice is I don't care if the rest of the kids and their parents think you're crazy. Let your kids throw you under the bus in order to get to safety. So you can make anything up you want. And it can be very negative about me. I don't care, but get yourself out of the situation, get yourself to safety. And usually that just means finding the adult in the house and just going, uh, I don't know what's going on in that room, but I just got nervous because I, you know, I didn't know if that was a toy gun or not. Um, you have to run the script with your kids. You have to teach them to get out of the room. And it's very, very hard for them to get there initially because especially for boys, the play patterns often, not for all boys and certainly not always, but often involve some sort of of violent piece. Look at video gaming. I mean, there's a lot in the book about video gaming and, and modeling of that behavior. So they, it's, their brains aren't wired yet to understand the permanence of the consequence. So that's, that's our job is to role play it with them. Girls and boys, we kid ourselves to think that our girls are not at the same risk. Guns don't care what your gender is. So if a child picks up a gun and is playing around and doesn't realize it's loaded, it can harm both a boy and a girl. And I empower every parent to have whatever conversations you need around that 
um, because with 125 guns for every 100 people in this country, the access issues are almost insurmountable at this moment. We have got to fix that. And so this is not, this is not a, you know, this is not a remote topic you bring up. This is a very real, real question and a good one. Thank you so much, Dr. Natterson. You're welcome. You can find out more about Dr. Kara Natterson at worryproofmd.com and on atomicmoms.com. We'll also be sharing articles on these themes all week on social media. You can buy Decoding Boys, New Science Behind the Subtle Art of Raising Sons, wherever books are sold. And don't forget to join our newsletter. If you heard a child screaming in the background, that was Eliza. She's having a great time. (laughs) We just have a couple episodes left before we're going to go on hiatus because my kids have, ah, they each have two weeks of spring break and they don't overlap. So I get a month of, yeah, a month of Atomic Moms fun. You can find the link on our website and in our Instagram bio link. Until next week, trust in your goodness, live out your greatness, rock on, Atomic Moms. Thank you.